Welcome, everybody, to the Religious Learning Program. I'm your host, Cameron Mazurk. Today we have with us Dave Burke. He is from South Australia. He is the twin brother of Jonathan Burke, who is the, our guest on Episode 1. He is studying for a degree in theology. He runs a blog called Milk to Meat and a Facebook page called Christian Origins. He has 20 years of pastoral experience. He specializes in Christology and early Christian history. He's written a, a Bible study guide called Servants of the Lord, and he has uh, written uh, a chapter in a book called One God, One God the Father. Welcome to the show, Dave. Hi, Cam. Nice to be with you. So today's uh, episode is about Ruth, and you've written a paper about that. So overall, what is uh, your paper about, and what specifically about Ruth is important? Um, okay, my paper begins with the premise that the book of Ruth is more about Naomi than Ruth. Um, Ruth has managed to get center stage because in many ways she's seen as the heroine of the story and she gets the guy at the end, so it's all very romantic and the book is named after her. So there's this general feeling that the book is all about Ruth and, and she's the central character. However, when I came to look at Ruth more carefully, I concluded that the book is actually about Naomi. <clears throat> Main reason for this is that everything that happens in the book actually centers around Naomi and her decisions. And Ruth is actually a secondary character who is carried along through the story by Ruth. Nothing that um, Ruth does is um, unrelated to Naomi. In fact, in many ways, Ruth only acts as a result of Naomi's decisions and recommendations. So really, I see the book of Ruth as uh, more of a story about Naomi. And Ruth is this um, interesting uh, secondary character who, who, who actually emerges and, and is developed and finds salvation through Naomi, and I think that's the most interesting aspect of the story. Yeah, certainly. I think most people, when they read Ruth, they think that's all about her, but it's, in fact, about her mother-in-law. That puts a whole new perspective. Can you give the listeners a summary of the lessons of Ruth? Yeah, sure. Um, although I'd rather call it, yeah, it's the lessons of the book of Ruth, but the, the lessons from the life of Naomi, if you like. Um, the big the big message from Naomi is that this is a story about rediscovering God. It's about a woman who lost sight of God when she moved to Moab and then realized that she had to rediscover him. And the only way she could do this was by moving back to her own community. So there's about six main points that I think we get from the story of Naomi. Firstly, a faithful community converts the faithless supports the weak and produces the strong. Secondly, true faith is personal, not cultural. You can't simply just go through the motions as a Christian. That won't last. That won't support you. That won't develop a relationship with God. Thirdly, rediscovering God is a humbling process. We need to come back to God on his terms, not ours. Fourthly, we've got to ask ourselves, is our community a place where can, God can be found, where God can be rediscovered by those who have left us 
and then sought to reconnect with us and with him. Fifthly, God exceeds expectations. Naomi came back from Moab with no sons and a daughter-in-law, but God gave her uh, a new uh, a new son-in-law and grandchildren to call her uh, her own. And finally, sixthly, it's never too late to rediscover God. He is always there waiting for us to return. All we need to do is call on him and he will reach out to us. In your paper, you talked about Naomi's family losing their faith. How did they lose their faith? Yeah, it's an interesting situation that they faced. Uh, there's famine in the land, and for whatever reason, they decide that they, they, can't, they can't face it. They're not going to be able to survive. So they move to Moab, and it's only intended to be a temporary move. And we know that because Elimelech doesn't sell his land, which he's, he's still got, and Naomi actually comes back to at the end of the story. And we might say, oh, well, the law of Moses prevented him from selling his land. He wasn't actually supposed to sell it. He could lease it, but he, he wasn't supposed to sell it. That is true, but we also know we're specifically told this is during the time of the judges when every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And there's also no judge mentioned as ruling in Judah at this time. So my conclusion is <clears throat> there was no judge looking after Judah. The law of Moses was being kept sporadically, um, pretty well in some places, not very well at all in other places, and not at all in, in still other places. The way the story goes, you can see that the law of Moses is pretty closely adhered to in um, Naomi's story. We find that particularly when she comes back, reclaims her land and seeks a husband for her daughter-in-law. But my conclusion is that really <clears throat> there was nothing to stop Elimelech selling his land. The law and its enforcement had broken down to such an extent that he probably could have got away with selling his land. And he makes no a, a effort to sort of lease it out or, or do anything with it. So my conclusion is he only went there temporarily. He was not giving up on Judah. He was, I think, giving up on his community. And to me, that's the bigger issue here. What was it about Elimelech's community or Elimelech's relationship with his community that led him to believe he couldn't find the support to get him through this famine? Other people clearly didn't leave. People like Boaz remained and toughed it out. What was it really about Elimelech's move um, <clears throat> that tells us something about his community? Because it's easy to say, oh, Elimelech moved because he lacked faith in God, or he was weak, or he was just too scared of, of the famine. But really, in the, in the ancient Near East, it was never just about you. These were collectivist cultures they were tight-knit communities you didn't make a decision based solely on your own position and priorities you always took into account the wider community and i conclude that elimelech left not because he lacked faith in god which was possibly at least partly true but mainly because he lacked faith in his community and that suggests the community was not in a good position at this time maybe they were only a lot of people were going through their own crisis of faith. So I think <clears throat> we need to look more carefully at the 
the background of these little communities and the way they operated and not just dump on Elimelech, which is very easy to do. I think it says more about the state of his community than it does about the state of Elimelech. You mentioned in there, uh, you know, a lot, a lot of Judaism at this point may have been based on tradition rather than uh, actual spiritual health. Um, do you think that in modern day, can traditions have positive and or negative effects? I, I definitely believe that, yes. If you look at the way <clears throat> the children of Israel end up keeping the law, um, by the time we reach Jesus' day, a first century, much of the law has not only been overlaid with man-made traditions from the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, but also people are simply keeping it out of habit. They're doing it because that's what you do if you're a Jew. And they've become cultural believers, cultural Jews. And Christianity has now faced the, the same problem. In what's increasingly being called a post-Christian world, many Christians simply end up keeping the outward form of Christianity without any kind of emotional or spiritual engagement. Uh, if you go to England, for example, many people, or most people, who were simply raised in an Anglican community or an Anglican family will call themselves Anglicans, even if they've never been to church. They just say, oh, I was raised in an Anglican family, therefore I'm Anglican. And <clears throat> they pay lip service to Christmas and Easter and, and maybe a couple of other things. But that's about their, the full extent of their involvement with the church. So it's mainly about outward form and, and culture and tradition than any kind of personal relationship with God. And that's not unique to the Anglicans. It's, it's definitely right across the board in the Christian community throughout the West, particularly these days, I think. It's very easy to go through the motions of being a Christian without being personally committed to Christianity. And I think this is part of the problem for Elimelech's family. They go over to Moab. They're distinct because they're, they're Jews. So they're ethnically distinct. They're religiously distinct. But I think over time they acclimatize to Moab and the distinctions between themselves and the Moabites are watered down, which is why Marlon and Killian end up marrying Moabite women, which was prohibited under the law of Moses. So at some point they just let everything slide and whatever differentiation there was has been papered over or just lost in this sort of cultural attitude. It is my it's my belief that most of the names in the Bible don't have any kind of uh, spiritual significance. They're just names like Cameron and Dave. But the Ruth story has uh, very interesting names, Elimelech and his two children. Do you want to hit on that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I totally agree that names are very much overanalyzed um, in Christian studies today, uh, mainly at the, the pastoral level rather than the academic level. <clears throat> and most of us who've grown up in, say, a conservative Christian background, as I did, have, were taught from a very young age that um, every word of Scripture has unique significance, and certainly the names are particularly important. So we have to learn what the names mean because that's an essential part of the story. Now that I'm older and I've had more experience and I've learned more about Bible study, I know that's not actually the case. However, it never hurts to look at the narrative and see if the narrative itself 
makes a point about names and the meaning of names in the story. Now, with a with the book of Ruth, it certainly does. And that means, in my view, we're justified in having a look at these names. <clears throat> I'll start with the, the example that uh, Naomi herself uses. When Naomi comes back from Moab, she changes her name. And she changes her name from Naomi to Mara. <clears throat> And Naomi means my joy, my pleasant one, which is a, a very lovely, positive um, female name. But Mara means bitter. And Mara was the place in the wilderness, as we find in, in Exodus 15. Mara was a place in the wilderness where the children of Israel found water, but it was bitter and they couldn't drink it. And God turned it into sweet water so that they could survive. But Naomi sort of reverses this she inverts the whole story she effectively accuses god of poisoning her ruining her life i'm not i'm not the joyous pleasant one anymore i'm bitterness i am bitter i have become a bitter person so <clears throat> naomi herself indicates to us that the meanings of names are important in this story so i, I think it's worth taking a look certainly we know that her name and her name change are both important but there's an interesting thing here, because even though Naomi says her name is now Mara, the narrator, the, the person who wrote this story, doesn't accept this. The narrator continues to call her Naomi, because the narrator has the advantage of knowing this story and, and knows how it's all going to end. So the narrator insists on calling her Naomi. <clears throat> because he knows that this story is actually going to work out really positively and Naomi's joy will be restored. And I think that's a really fascinating little insight that the text offers, it, uh, offers us all by itself. Now if we come back to the start of the story and we have a look at some other names, <coughs> uh, Elimelech, for example. Um, <coughs> Elimelech was the, the head of the family who takes full responsibility for leading them into Moab. And his name means God is king, which was actually quite ironic because God was supposed to be the king of Israel. Uh, but at this point, they, they um, were living in lawless times, kingless times, when God was having to produce judges to keep law and order uh, throughout the nation. So there was no king and every man did that which was right in his own eyes and the sovereignty of God was being largely ignored. <clears throat> and to some extent, I think you know, people have seen that in Elimelech's own life, that he, he um, neglected this fact that, that God was king, that God was in charge, and that he could work things out for the family. So I think Elimelech's name, although it's, it's not hugely significant to the story, I think is a nice, at least a nice little ironic touch. Now, Marlon and Kilion, their names mean sickness and failing. And many commentators have seen this as an indication of spiritual weakness and decline. And they've said, oh, Marlon and Kilian, sickness and failing by name, sickness and failing by nature. They went into a pagan land, they lost their faith and they died for it. They must have been bad people. Now, I don't agree with that for a number of reasons. <clears throat> Firstly, in the ancient world, because uh, we might say, well, who's going to call their baby kid sickness or failing? Who does that? 
Okay, but in the ancient world, it was not uncommon for people to name their children um, after whatever conditions they were born into, whether healthy or, or weak, and give them a name that reflected their start in life. Very often, they didn't name their child for quite a few weeks just to see if it would, it would actually survive because the mortality rate for children was so high. So you weren't going to waste a name on a kid who wouldn't last long enough to actually benefit from it. But if you did name your child, it was not uncommon to name them uh, in, in a way that reflect this, reflected their start in life. So it could very well be that Marlon and Killian were weak and sickly children in their early years. And very often these names stuck and they, they simply retained them and they weren't changed again and they have, had these names for the rest of their lives. <clears throat> I think it's fair to say that was probably the case with Marlon and Killian. I don't believe it reflects spiritual weakness on their part. I think, yes, they did become spiritually weak, but I don't think their names indicate that. And I don't think that's what we're supposed to get from their names. And if you look at the women they chose to marry in Moab, they were actually really nice people. For all that they were Moabites and they had not been converted to Judaism, and we know that because Naomi refers to my gods and your gods and my people and your people when she talks to her two daughters-in-law. They're still separated by culture, by ethnicity, and by religion. Both of these girls loved Naomi very much. Orpah leaves, but she only does so with the greatest of reluctance. And again, a lot of people go, oh, uh, Ruth was a nice, strong one and, and Orpah was the dodgy, weak one. Not at all. Orpah leaves only un, uh, under duress, only when Naomi pretty much gives both girls an ultimatum. I can't produce new sons for you. You've got no hope, no future with me. And Ruth just happened to be the one who said, I don't care, I'll throw in my lot with you. And Orpah goes, but Orpah was really sad to leave her. And Naomi cared enough about these girls as well to want the most for them. So Marlon and Killian, even though they become rather weak-willed and wayward and they seem to lose all direction after the death of their father, I think it's a testament to these guys that they actually married the best girls they could find in Moab, which must have been a pretty tough call at the time. And the women they married actually have good morals and they love Naomi and Naomi loves them both. So I think, again, it's, it's, we should be very wary of making hasty generalizations about the spiritual and moral state of Marlon and Killian based on their names. I don't think that holds up. You mentioned Mara, uh, or sorry, Naomi, who changed her name to Mara, and even though the narrator never acknowledges that, to me that kind of reminds me uh, of the prodigal son and how Naomi returned. The community all was so happy to see her return, and that's kind of the story of prodigal son. Uh, the com community was happy, or at least his father was happy. Is there any connection to that? Yeah, I think that's a nice little parallel to draw. Um <clears throat> If you look at Naomi's return, uh, everyone is astonished. They're amazed to see her. There's, so it's been more than 10 years now. A lot of people would have assumed that she was dead or, or simply living permanently in, in Moab now. To see her come back <clears throat> um, with such courage in such reduced circumstances. I mean, this woman is disgraced now. 
She has lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She has no heirs. She's come back to this tiny little plot of land that Elimelech still had kicking around. And it's to the credit of this community that nobody has stolen that land or sought to monetize it for their own gain. That land has been kept, preserved somehow, maybe by a relative, so that when Naomi returns, it's given straight back to her. She doesn't have to fight for it. But Naomi has come back having lost everything, and all she's got to show for it is a daughter-in-law from a nation cursed by the law of, Mo, uh, law of Moses. And this is a humiliating situation to be in, particularly for a woman in Israel. This is just the worst situation to be in. But nobody stands up and says, well, we told you, Naomi, we told you this would have happened, or, or uh, oh, you've come back in disgrace and that's what you deserve. We want nothing to do with you. People are amazed and astonished, but with joy, not with, with anger or disgust. And <clears throat> everyone accepts Naomi straight away, and it doesn't take long for people to accept Ruth as well, because they can see she is a good person and she's worthy of Naomi. So they're impressed by the fact that this young girl has come back with Naomi, despite the fact that Naomi has virtually nothing to offer her. That means a lot. That says huge things about the, the strength of uh, Ruth's moral character. And that's one of the reasons I, I think people um, are very quick to accept Ruth. Boaz makes a point of this uh, later in the story. He says, everyone, he says to Ruth, everyone knows you're a good and virtuous woman. Everyone can see that. <clears throat> and this suggests to me, that I mean, okay, maybe the community has changed over the past 10 years, that's quite likely, but it also might suggest that Elimelech judged his community too harshly. Um, whatever the situation he thought he was in, this community actually does look after people very well. Maybe it wasn't doing that so well 10, 10 years plus ago. Maybe there's been a generational shift. Boaz, for example, is now in charge of um, of his own estate there's no mention of him earlier it's possible he was still working his way up in the family business uh, so maybe there's been a generational shift and pastoral care is actually much stronger than it used to be but it's really to the credit of that community that they welcome naomi back again and that's a message i think for contemporary christians how do we treat the people who leave our community for whatever reason and then try to find their way back what do we do? Do we seek those people? Do we look after them? Do we strive to shepherd them, call them back, do whatever we can to reconnect with them? Or do we do we let them do all the work and wait for them to come crawling back and then say, well, we told you so, and, you know, then begrudgingly offer them the support that they, they never received in the first place? People should be welcomed back into our community um, without judgment, and we need and then we need to simply apply ourselves to their well-being it's that simple now the story of Malin and Killian do they teach us a certain lesson for today's age i'm to some extent a little reluctant about drawing too much from their story because we're not given a huge amount of detail about them but i i think there's like a, a little spiritual lesson here um because when Naomi brings Ruth back, uh, the lesson that Ruth gets out of it is that she can only find a new life, really, with Naomi in 
the um, in the community of the children of Israel. For whatever reason, Ruth has concluded that there's nothing left in Moab to offer her. Maybe she's been intrigued by Naomi's faith, uh, what little she might have seen of it, and intrigued by the fact that Naomi's going back to her people. And, they, and Ruth thinks, if this lady, this older woman, having lost everything, is confident enough to go back to her community in disgrace and be confident that she can actually survive and thrive, maybe that says something about this community uh, and maybe it tells me that this is a community where I too could be received and, and the life could get better for me too. Naomi, I think, provides an excellent example for Ruth, which is one of the reasons I think this book is really all about her. Ruth is motivated and, and guided by Naomi straight from the beginning of this story all the way to the end. She doesn't do anything without consulting Naomi. So it's really Naomi driving this narrative from start to finish. So uh, with regard to Marlon and Killian, yeah, I could definitely say one example or lesson for contemporary Christians is if you're going to walk away from the community, beware of what you're walking into. Because if you leave your community and you abandon that support, <clears throat> you have no idea what could happen uh, it's it's just not worth casting yourself onto an uncaring world or a community that doesn't know or care for you. You need to remain connected with the commu your community, even if your faith is at its lowest ebb, even if you can barely drag yourself along to church on a Sunday. Stay connected with your community however you can and seek whatever support you can from them. Don't walk away from them. Don't make it harder for them to reconnect you. Also, I think on another level, there's a little bit of a spiritual parallel. It's almost like Marlon and Killian represent the law of Moses. They could teach their wives uh, the principles of, of the law, if you like, which they may have done to some extent, I don't know, but they couldn't provide them with a fulfilling life. They couldn't provide them with... Um, with a life that would that would continue and end successfully. They both died before they could fulfill their, their relationships with their wives, produce children, and actually give their wives a, a, a chance at a new life. Whereas Boaz, in some respects, is like a type of Christ. He's the only one who can offer um, Ruth the redemption that she needs, the new life she, that she needs, and, and children of her own. So if you look at the, the contrast between these two, it's almost as if Marlon and Killian represent the law of Moses that could tell you how to be saved but couldn't save you, uh, whereas Boaz actually is more like Christ who can teach you how to be saved and can save you and can bring the entire atonement process right to its natural conclusion. Uh, in Judaism, at least uh, a lot of rabbis, and for listeners who don't know, I went to Yeshiva, which is a Jewish school, uh, they make uh, a point about Ruth not being a Jew and its importance within the Ruth story, and that is how we need to look at uh, people who are outside our community and realize that they may be reflect God better than we can, and we can help them out once they convert. Uh, do you see that uh, as the same point that Ruth is making? Yeah, I, I very much think so. Um, again, it goes back to the point I made earlier about Ruth and uh, Orpah actually being nice people, being decent people that Naomi was reluctant to to leave 
and both of whom were reluctant to leave Naomi. Um, Ruth distinguishes herself immediately as a good and virtuous woman, which is against all the expectations of the community she's just entered. They'd all heard about the Moabites. They'd had a bad relationship with the Moabites. Ruth was supposed to conform to all the stereotypes about Moabites that they had all been raised with. And yet she's the exact opposite. And it takes no time at all for people to recognize that. And it's to Naomi's credit that uh, she worked hard to do her best for for Ruth to seek out a, um, a husband for her to go through the the process of finding the near kinsman and actually working through every step of the way uh, a process that will develop a new life for Ruth. And she does that because she can see that. Ruth is actually more than just an ethnicity. She's more than just someone from a different culture. She sees in Ruth what she sees in her community, and that's a huge, um, that's a huge revelation for all the people in her community. You would have said, "This girl's no good. She's a Moabitess. What can we do with her?" Going back to names and their meanings, uh, Boaz uh, comes up later in the story. What is the importance of Boaz, and what does his name mean? Um, Boaz, his name means um, in him is strength, or in it is strength. And Boaz was one of the names of the two pillars uh, in Solomon's temple. One was called Jachin, and the other was called Boaz. And Boaz means in it is strength, or in him is strength. And the way I see in this story is that Boaz lives up to this name very well. He is a pillar in the community, he supports the community. He looks after the poor. His servants know him very well. He is a very diligent man. He doesn't ask his servants to do anything he wouldn't do himself. He doesn't sit back in his comfortable home and expect everyone else to do the work. He's right down there in the threshing floor helping out. He even sleeps in the threshing floor overnight so that he can start work with them the very next day. We are told that he doesn't round the corners of his field. <clears throat> so he obeys the law of Moses, which said, don't round the corners of your field, but leave the leave the corners for the um, for the poor to glean in. And Boaz goes an extra mile here. He leaves the corners for the poor to glean in and he tells his reapers to leave extra uh, extra um, grain on the ground for Ruth and um, and others to pick up. So Boaz doesn't just keep the letter of the law, he keeps the spirit of the law and he goes even further. He knows what the law expects of him, but he also knows what the real principle is. So he goes beyond the letter of the law to fulfill the principle. And Boaz, I think, has established himself as this leading figure in the community, um, both morally and spiritually as, as well as financially. And I think that's a, a hugely significant um, point to pick up because we might, we might say, oh, well, hang on a second. The only reason Boaz didn't leave the community when the famine came is because he was a rich guy and rich guys don't have to worry about this kind of stuff. But that's not really true because Abraham was a rich guy and yet a famine was still threat enough to drive him into Egypt. And also, as I said before, we don't know what the situation of Boaz was before Naomi came back. There's no mention of him at the start of the story. 
which begins, um, you know, more than 10 years before we actually encounter Boaz. So in those 10 plus years, he could have started off small, as I said before, maybe working for his father, work his way up in the family business. Maybe his father's died and he's finally inherited the farm and he's finally in a position to start helping people in the way that he's always wanted to. Uh, Boaz didn't remain <clears throat> in the community because he was rich. He remained in the community because he was faithful and diligent. And yes, that means Elimelech was not quite so faithful or diligent. But as I said, it could also re reflect the poor state or the inconsistent state of the community in that time and its application to pastoral care. One of the things when reading ancient texts is a cultural clash. And I think when a lot of people read the book of Ruth, there's a what to them is a bizarre scene of Ruth going to see Boaz in the middle of the night. Can you put that in a little bit of context for us? Yeah. Now, this was a very controversial move. It was a real risky move. Um, I mean, in a modern conservative Christian context, we would find it uh, morally dubious and risky and offensive. But even more so in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, Ruth was doing something that was very, very inappropriate, uh, and it could have got her into a massive amount of trouble. <clears throat> so we've got to ask ourselves, why does Naomi tell her to do it in the first place? What's the deal here? Now, when you read the narrative, I think from looking at the way Boaz responds to Ruth, uh, I think Boaz recognises that Ruth did not come on her own initiative. I think he immediately recognises, because he already knows that she's a, a demure, modest woman who behaves herself properly, and he's given explicit instructions to his workers not to molest or harass her, um, I think he realises she would not have come to him unless she'd been told to by someone she respected, and that could only be Naomi. And by sending Ruth to Boaz in this way, I think Naomi is actually sending Boaz a direct message. So to my mind, and I get the feeling too that Boaz is closer to Naomi's age than to Ruth's. He refers to Ruth as a daughter. Uh, um, and he so he uses the language of a much older person. And I get the impression that there is... Um, an unspoken communication occurring between these two much more mature people, Naomi and Boaz, <clears throat> through this symbolic act of sending Ruth to her, uh, to him at night. Um, so, yeah, in chapter two, verse eight, when um, Boaz says to Ruth, don't leave to gather grain in another field. You don't need to go any further than my field. Work along my, alongside my female workers and I'll tell the men to leave you alone and everyone will look after you and it'll be fine. And he prefaces those remarks with, listen carefully, my dear. And uh, the Hebrew here that translated my dear in the NET Bible, the Hebrew word is actually my daughter. And it's a, a mild form of endearment, but it also suggests that Boaz is definitely older than Ruth. So I think Naomi has sent Ruth to Boaz with the understanding, or at the very least the hope, 
that he will recognize what is happening here. And what does Ruth do? She doesn't do what Israelites would expect a Moabitess to do. She doesn't attempt to seduce Boaz or coerce him or threaten him or beg or plead. She does something very simple and symbolic. She goes to him at night when her beauty cannot be seen, which is a, a modest thing to do anyway, but also um, going to him at night also precludes any embarrassment or, or shame on either part of them. She simply lies down at his feet and then covers herself partly with his cloak. And that's a symbol of um, submission and saying, look after me, cover me, provide for me the support that I know only you can provide. And in, in some ways, I like to see it as a almost like a mirror image of the atonement. As, as we approach Christ, we ask him to cover our sins and become our bridegroom. And Ruth does exactly this. She comes to him as this woman with very little hope from a cursed background. And she effectively says, I know that you're the only one who can look after me and make everything right for me. <clears throat> and Naomi has chosen Boaz very well because she, she knows exactly the kind of guy he is. And she's been emboldened by his specific treatment of Ruth. He has singled her out right from the start. And that tells Naomi he's already interested in her. And that's another important point, because in the ancient Near East, you didn't marry for love. Nine times out of ten, you married out of convenience or tradition or because people had already arranged your marriage, which was the standard way of getting married. Marriage was not normally a union of two people. It was seen as a union of two families. It was an advantageous thing. People got married for the mutual advantage of their families. Ruth is, has virtually nothing to offer Boaz. She's actually acknowledging that she has nothing to offer him. She's begging him for support, for comfort, for atonement, if you will. And she does this in this beautiful, gentle, symbolic way of um, covering herself with his cloak. Now, Boaz, if Naomi had made a big mistake and Boaz was not the kind of guy she thought he was, he could have reacted in a number of ways. He could have been outraged and shocked and disgraced both Naomi and Ruth by accusing Ruth of attempting to seduce him. Or he could have taken advantage of Ruth and seduced her and then used his influence in the community to cover it up. But he doesn't do any of these things. Um, when he's got over his initial surprise, he very quickly understands what's going on here. <clears throat> And we know that because he sends Ruth home with um, a substantial amount of grain to, to take home to Naomi. <clears throat> and he, um, he commends her right at the start. He says, I've been given a full report of all that you have done for your mother-in-law following the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother as well as your homeland and came to live among people you did not know previously. May Yahweh reward your efforts. May your acts of kindness be repaid fully by Yahweh, God of Israel, from whom you have so sought protection. And that's the key. She recognizes she has sought protection from the God of Israel, 
by going to a prominent man in Israel and asking for his protection. He recognizes there is a spiritual dimension to what she is, is doing. And Ruth responds, you are really being kind to me, sir, for you have reassured and encouraged me, your servant, even though I'm not one of your servants. And then during the mealtime, Boaz uh, brings himself to her and, um, uh, uh, sorry, brings her to him and shares his food with her, makes sure she eats to her full, and he sends her home with this huge amount of, of barley, a substantial amount of, of barley. It's about 30 pounds of barley, um, as the NET Bible puts it. So she takes it back to Naomi. Now, you don't give someone 30 pounds of, of barley unless you're saying something pretty significant. And what he's saying is, I'm going to look after not just you, but also your mother-in-law for as long as you need. It's both a, an, an acknowledgement and acceptance of her request and to some extent a marriage proposal, a tacit marriage proposal. So when Ruth goes back and explains the situation uh, to Naomi, Naomi picks it up right away um, and when she when she goes to him uh, again this time to the threshing floor and and um, seeks his his covering, they've already established this relationship between them. Uh, so that again is one of the reasons why Boaz is confident that um, Ruth is doing the right thing for the right motives. She asks him, "Marry, I am your servant. Marry your servant, for you are a guardian." of the family interests and he recommends her for her devotion and her good um her good moral character and that's when he mentions the other closer relative who is more qualified to marry her so i definitely feel that um although naomi and ruth were both taking a big risk it was a, a carefully assessed risk based on what they knew about boaz and the way he had treated and singled her out already well, thank you, Dave. Thank you for bringing the the book of Ruth to life for us. Oh, my pleasure. I, I think it's a fascinating little book, and it's um, it's very easy to to gloss over it um, and uh, and miss all these little things. And of course, I, I mentioned before he sent Ruth home with thirty pounds of barley. That was actually on their first occasion, their first encounter. But after she sought him and asked for him to marry her, he sends her home with twice as much, 60 pounds of barley, because he says, don't go to your, to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And that's when Naomi knows that this has been clinched. It's absolutely going to happen. Naomi says to Ruth, stay put, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest until he has taken care of the matter today. And so there's this wonderful confidence now that she has in Boaz because he res responded to her unspoken gesture. So this communication between these two older people, uh, I think, is definitely worth recognizing in the narrative. How can the listeners uh, follow your latest work? Well, I've got um, two sites that I run. I've got one called uh, Milk to Meat, which is a blog, www.milktomeat.org, and that contains uh, Bible study tips and um, and resource tips, uh, 
tells you how to apply different methods of Bible study, how to upgrade your study library, what to look for in commentaries and all this kind of thing. It also provides a nice glossary of uh, technical terms used in Bible study. And I also have a Facebook page called Christian um, Christian History. And um, Cam, I know you'll be putting up the URL for that one in, um, in the notes section. And Christian History covers the first six centuries of early Christian history. It also covers uh, an overview of the Reformation. And finally, the three great awakenings that led all the way up to um, the Enlightenment. So uh, those are two pages that people can go to if they want to keep up with the work that I'm doing. You have a book coming out in April, that's correct? That's right. Um, hopefully no no later than the end of the month. The book is called Servants of the Lord, and it's a comprehensive Bible study guide. It will not only show you how to study the Bible more effectively, how to build up a good study library, uh, what to look for, uh, when you're buying the resources, how to identify the best resources. It also provides um, an outline uh, uh, of early church history as and the Reformation, as on, on my Christian History Facebook page. It provides a guide to critical thinking, logic, reason, and their relationship to faith and belief. And finally, it shows you how to put all of these things into practice in your own community. It offers a guide to formal writing and public speaking and discussion group leadership. So there's some very practical applications there as well. It's not all theory. It also shows you what to do with what you've learned and how you can apply it to your own community. And a part of that book will be coming out in the Religious Learning Quarterly magazine, correct? That's right, yep. So, listeners, please download that and read Dave's work. Dave, I really appreciate you coming on. No worries. Thanks very much, Kemp. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and God bless.